it is my pleasure to welcome back Spec as the presenting sponsor of Fraudology this quarter. Stay tuned for more information and updates on their product capabilities, or click the link in the episode description to request your personal demo of Spec's TrustCloud platform. Welcome to this week's Thursday episode of the Fraudology podcast, where we dive into the science and study of online fraud from the perspective of an e-commerce fraud fighter. I'm Carice Hendrick. I'm back with my friend Diana Gajic Physic, and I'm so grateful that she made the time to come back a second time. Tuesday, we talked about refund claim fraud and what it is and what it isn't, and how the merchant fraud prevention side learned about it. And then today, I asked her to come back to talk with me in detail about the how refund fraud is committed and share a bit about how merchants are addressing these issues. One caveat I want to say at the front is that we can't and won't provide many details about some of the successful ways that retailers are addressing these issues because we are aware that Fraudology is a public format. And even though I'm very confident that so far, so good, and the other side isn't listening, we never want to take our chances. But we will share towards the end of some ways that we want to get this word out in another way, in more of a private setting. So we won't be able to share the specifics on that, but I really do believe that just understanding how it's being done will help you to identify solutions as well. Diana, thank you again for joining me on this topic. Thank you so much for having me. And you're right. We are here trying to help merchants, not trying to help fraudsters. So we will provide as much information (laughs) as we can, but not too many details so they would find a way around it. Yeah, we don't have that much leverage, right? Because this is still, we're still trying to catch up with them. They found the vulnerability so much earlier. And so we need to keep whatever advantage we have. Yes, and we are still in very reactive mode in this type of fraud. We still don't have too much, too many ways of proactively fighting this. So, but the problem itself is as such that it needs to be fought reactively rather than proactively. So until we find more efficient and better way, we'll share only what we can. Exactly. So just picking up where we left off on last on the last episode because you'd already had a head start on really understanding and drilling into your company's DNR did not receive that's usually DNRs is what or DNAs did not arrive is often what the fraud search will call it although some merchants call it that i found the majority of retailers call it INRs inventory not received this is really just the name of the category of claim that you guys used to fill out in the what now seems like rare occasion of a package not being delivered. Now there's so many more, but so you'd already been diving into that for like over a year before we had that call, not necessarily knowing that it was as big as it was, like you said on the last episode, but knowing that it was coordinated and that there were patterns for sure. So because of that, you really helped the group, you know, our retailer group, once we realized it was fraud, think about what their next their first step should be in trying to quantify it and just get their arms around it and understand it better. So I'd love to start there with what you suggested and what you found from your own experience. Yes, I think we mentioned last time that the biggest reason why so many retailers and merchants were not fighting this is because they were not aware that this is an actual problem or actual Mm -hmm. fraud. 
a lot of these losses were written off as an operational cost. Truly, item is not received. You want to send a new one and so on. But the most important thing, and which is actually the most difficult thing at that point, was to quantify how much of this problem is an actual problem and how much of this is just true operation or a process issue. So I think the number one that needs to be done is to quantify this, not only so that you know what you're working with and what you need to focus on, but also to present this to your leadership so they understand that this truly is a problem and that way you can get some help from within your organization. The other side is, as you and I always talk about, is creating the appropriate categories for these refunds. Mm -hmm. There are refunds of the missing items. There are also refunds of items that do come back to your C's. And you want to make sure that you understand where is the refund fraud versus refund abuse. Creating the appropriate categories for these refund requests or, or the refunds you're issuing is very important because you may be chasing the wrong thing. And let's say you're tagging something as did not receive, but it's actually just one item received, the other one was not. Mm. You may be chasing parcel that never made it to the customer, but the fact, truth of the fact is parcel was received. It's just they're trying to use a different method, which we're going to talk about later. Right. But I think it's important to categorize, categorize this appropriately so you know what to chase and what, what mitigation strategies to put in place. And I think the other thing is to have a true understanding where is the fraud and where is the actual abuse. You can put the right strategies in place. I think that I mentioned this before in several different conversations we had. Refund fraud is probably the most complex problem or the most complex fraud I've ever seen. Hmm. Because it's not, there is no one risk gap. The risk gap does not only sit at your refund request intake or refund request completion. Mm -hmm. There are multiple gaps from your address not being completely correct or corrected, from the carrier not delivering it, from you not categorizing it properly, for you issuing it without cross-referencing the internal data. There are so many risk mm -hmm. gaps in this process, and you have to make sure that you have this holistic view do you understand where each gap is and how to close it? Oh my gosh, yeah. The thing I'd add on the reason codes is it helps you be able to monitor it later on and be able to see it spike because as we're going to talk about in a couple minutes, it's I think a lot of merchants are still seeing this refund fraud problem almost like a dragon, right? And if they've heard my zombies and dragon metaphor, they get it. Where I'll hear merchants say, we closed the gap on INRs. I saw that they considered us dead, so we're good. And I'm like, oh, no, no, no. They're testing your, your systems right now. Yep. They're testing your system right now. And I guarantee you, like, I don't want to be right, but I would bet, and I'm not a betting person, but I would bet money the fact that in two to three weeks, you're going to see claims of an empty box or a missing item skyrocket because they know that you put a little friction in the, you know, the process for INRs. They're going to move to the next one. And I'm not going to say, you know, there's five methods and I'm not going to say any one of them are difficult for them, but it's based on their preferences, based on how easy it is. The easiest one by far is just to call up the merchant and say, hey, I didn't get it or some big story. Right. And if that big story works the first time, then you're going to keep hearing it throughout the day or your customer service is going to hear it. But I, categories are so important, but it's not exactly something that customer service or any company, you know, a lot of internal retailers have been doing. It's just gone into a bucket of refund claims. Yes. And so it's really important. And I know you had to do a lot of work on this and other merchants have too, where you have to, you know, explain to customer service why it's important, get them on board, but then we'll be able to measure it. And that's what helps you quantify it, right? Because you really can't quantify the problem 
until you know the categories, you have a little bit more data on it. And they're just most retailers don't have any data on this because it's just a black hole that was never really monitored before. Correct. It's important to know how much of your or how many of your orders did go out and you did not receive funds for it. Mm -hmm. And how many of those orders you're replacing? How many of those orders are potentially coming back, but they get lost in transit on the way back, so you never <laughs> receive them, which is whole another method as well. So it's important to know what is your true loss and how does that loss happen? And I think that's why you need to measure what is the true number of how many refunds you issue for the items you never receive back. And then mm -hmm. you need to break them down into a category to understand how are you losing this and what is the type of fix that you can put in place to prevent this from happening in the future. And I think it's important just to mention that we still have majority of our customers being true and honest and legitimate yes. customers who will make these requests. So how will oh, you yeah. make this process seamless for your good customer yes. at the same time being able to recognize these abusers and stop them, which is the whole balancing act that we always talk about. Yeah. And I think, I mean, you and I have spent greater part of the last three years and other retailers have too, but I feel like you and I have spearheaded it in a couple different ways to really understand that and be able to answer that question, to be able to say, what are the differences? What are those little tiny signs, whether it's specific to what they're claiming or whether it's specific to how they behave at different parts of the customer journey and different parts of the life cycle, whether it's when, you know, they it might be when they place their or the order. But the problem with all that that we talked about in the last episode was there are too many good customers that do the same thing right? If you look at, okay, this, or sometimes it's just a group of refunders. So this group all prefer this specific bin or this specific card. And we notice that they're using that to make their purchase, but other customers do too, right? Or other ones, they're using a VPN. Well, other customers do too. And so that's why you really can't identify it at time of transaction because there's nothing that solidly says these guys are going to call or they're going to chat or they're going to log into their account or whatever the easiest method is for them. And they're going to claim that, you know, this and this happened when it really didn't. And so I think the reason why my brain works this way is because I worked for one of the biggest online travel companies 12 years ago building a friendly fraud process. And it's very similar where the point, maybe it's not the point of compromise, but the point where you can identify it, the point of detection isn't at the time of transaction. But that doesn't Correct. mean that you can't identify it and say, okay, these guys really did use their credit card and they're claiming they didn't. And these guys really didn't use their credit card and they need their money back. Like it's very similar, just in a different spot. I know there are a lot of retailers that are actually placing some type of friction at the time of transaction for the for these potential mm. abusers. And I am I am not in favor of that first because I don't think the transaction should be declined because they may or may not claim they didn't get it. But yeah. if you think about it, what is your risk? Your risk is that someone will claim refund. Uh, or missing item, and you will lose money at that point. So why would you mitigate risk at the transactional level when that's not where your risk is? Right. So I understand maybe adding additional friction. I know that there are some ideas about adding additional friction to the customer at the point of checkout, or maybe just adding a different shipping method and so on. Mm -hmm. But that's not where the risk is. I agree with maybe adding some friction or ha having at least more visibility at that point. But if that's not where your risk is, why would you putting your mitigation strategies there. So I believe as much as I like to push management strategies upstream, oh, yeah. in this case, there are other things you can do upstream to manage that type of risk, but stopping that transaction from happening is definitely not one of them. Yeah. You can capture more data. You can 
do different things like that. But yeah, you don't want to stop it. And I think there's as different people and different companies have tried to solve this problem. I think that's what we were talking about on Tuesday's episode too, where for there were a couple of payment fraud solutions that were quick to say, okay, yeah, we can identify the accounts that do this all the time. Yeah, but that's very different. That's abuse. So if you're looking at the same account that's done this three times and they say the item never gets received, well, now that's a customer issue where maybe you need to say, hey, instead you need to pick it up at the store or we just want to make sure that the product gets to you and it looks like something's going on there. So how can we do this better for you? You know, I think we're going to require, yeah, not that we want to push them to access points, but you're right, or, or somewhere where where signatures required or something like that. That's a customer issue. That's an abuse issue. That's not, and that is something you can, and there are some companies that have that problem and are losing a lot of money and they'll find that when they start categorizing it and then diving into some of the details of each of those categories. And as you start to look at the data and the more data you have about what they claimed at the time of the refund and you know, how they were. And if you have call recordings and things like that, I know that's been helpful in the research for merchants. Huh, we've heard the same person six times. And I do know that there are some retailers who have looked into like voice biometrics on phone calls for that reason. But unfortunately, I can think very quickly about how those can be worked around where either you've got fraud of a, as a service economy and you can just hire a bunch of people to call yeah. at the time that are different. Or you just do it through chat or you just do it through email. And chat is usually their preferred method anyways. Yes. And I was going to say, yeah, chat's their preferred method anyway. But again, so yeah, just, you know, knowing, understanding the problem is always going to be the first step to any type of fraud, whether it's payment fraud, refund fraud, promo code abuse, loyalty abuse, et cetera. Not just understanding, but like really getting it. And that's what we worked on for so long. And I spent a lot of time on the fraudster side. You spent a lot of time on the merchant side and other retailers did too on both. And then we every other week would come together and put the pieces together. And that helps to clarify a lot of what was going on. One of the most useful things for me was when I felt I got stuck that I put some things in place, I made some changes and I haven't seen movement as much as I wanted to. I didn't see improvements as much as I wanted to. I completely stepped back and started looking at the process over mm. again mm. and trying to kind of right. this, dissect the entire process and think what is there that I haven't looked at. So I think to your point, it's extremely important to understand the problem. So you need to understand how the process looks like. Yes. This is something that point. we can share. Think about it from the moment customer gets to your site to the moment customer mm. calls in and says, I didn't get it, or to the moment your representative is processing that refund request. What are the things, what are the risk gaps in that entire process that can be exploited and think about how does that, how does it work for you to close those gaps? Yeah, because there were some things that weren't necessarily fraud related. It was more like, oh, we, we've done this to ourselves. Like yeah, some, even if it's not yeah. fraud related, if it's a loss, you still want to close that gap. And if it's abuse, you want to exactly. close that gap. Exactly. If it's a fraud, you want to close a gap, but you won't be able to do any of that unless you understand that process fully and understand where those gaps are. And sometimes you're going to put something in place that's just going to improve customer experience, create less friction. Sometimes it's going to make things a little bit harder for everyone. But the whole point is back to that balancing to make sure that you prevent those losses from happening regardless of how they come in. Mm -hmm. For you to understand how these losses happen and where those risk gaps are, it's going to be a lot easier to find something to stop them. Yeah, you talked about address normalization, right? Correct. If you're you do, you know, you 
mentioned that earlier, if you do an analysis and you realize, oh, like their address, they're all writing them differently and they're not, they're not formatted right. Or, and, and it's actually leading to legitimate issues of Correct. items not being delivered. Maybe we look at a solution that will normalize the address at the beginning and say, hey, you entered this. Did you mean this? And there's a whole bunch of science around that as far as what you can capture and what you can't at that point. And oh, absolutely. And they don't all work the same. So it's, and they don't all, there's some that are, some allow you to override, some don't like just all those things. So those little details matter. I've learned that all from you guys, but. And that's, that's one example. Your, that's your way of doing POC and testing these companies and see which one works for you, which one does not. But the, the thing is, this is not, I believe that beef and fraud is not a type of problem where you're going to be able to put one thing in place and you're going to resolve it for the most part. That's not going to happen. You have to take little piece by piece, chunk by chunk and resolve one issue at a time. And I think when now that you mentioned address piece, to me, that was useful for returns because sometimes you have orders that are coming back to you because the address was non-deliverable. Right. Yeah. So this had nothing to do with fraud. It had nothing to that, do with abuse, but it yes. had to do with the fact that sometimes system didn't pick it up, customer didn't type it well, maybe customer purchased it in a store, like buy in store and we ship it to you. And then the address was typed in incorrectly. So making sure that address is formatted properly, minimize those losses, but didn't really necessarily have anything to do with, with fraud, but still it's one chunk. It's one tiny removal of their loss. Yeah. And I think that's what we're circling around is as you dive into the details, it's very similar for anyone who was the first person to own fraud for their company and trying to dive into all of the details there from a payment fraud perspective. But from this more than anything, and I think this is what you're saying is there's so many different pieces of the process. There's so many different variables and things that as you're diving into the process and you're diving into understanding what the fraudsters are doing and all that, you're able to uncover just a lot of opportunities to just reduce Absolutely. overall losses, whether it's customer abuse or all that and increase customer experience. Because if you think about all those packages that weren't being delivered to customers, that's not that wasn't fraud. That was legitimately they were getting sent back to your warehouse. So you still were getting the inventory. It wasn't fraud, but that you lost that customer because they're like, hey, I ordered this. And yeah, you re you refunded my money, but it was like two, three weeks later by the time you got it back to your warehouse. That's not a good customer experience. Absolutely so not. you were able to tighten up a lot of things. It's not just about fraud, but you find so many other opportunities to, you know, decrease losses and increase customer experience. And that should always be our mission. Correct. And I, what I've didn't mention, and I think it's extremely important for you to understand what is your true loss, because not mm -hmm. all of did not receive <laughs> will be your loss. Yes. Not all empty boxes will be your loss. You have to understand what is the true loss. And that's why it's extremely important to make sure you categorize this properly. You have all of the data, you measure the mm -hmm. inventory you have in the inventory that went out and you haven't received the payment because I'm going to just give you a little piece of information that uh, I discovered early on, luckily. When we were measuring the losses, there was a piece that actually tied to chargeback. Mm -hmm. So if you measure your shrink, your inventory shrink, you will say item is out, money is not in, but it's not did not receive, it's an actual chargeback. So that's mm -hmm. not a loss because we do have target reimbursement and so on. So you need to understand what your true right. loss here is it did mm -hmm. not receive and how much of did not receive is true loss. Maybe some of those did not receive are just incorrectly tagged and maybe they are coming back. Right. So you so will you'll be still chasing. Get your money. Oh, you'll get your inventory back. So you're not, yes, you're giving the customer their money back. Correct. But, but it's not a true loss. Back. Exactly. Because 
you're able to sell it again. So you bring up such a good point that Correct. You know, really so identifying those true losses. And then categorizing where those true losses are coming from. So again, not to be chasing completely wrong end of the tail. Right. That makes complete sense. And I think another thing that we just have to mention is this won't be a quick process. And it's really Absolutely important not. to build relationships. Like Alan shared last week, our dear friend that we have in common, Alan Buck. You guys have a very funny friendship. You make me laugh often. Exactly. But he was he was talking about just the importance of communicating things and having a feedback within your company. And so, for instance, every time you find something, you identify something and you learn something, that's an opportunity to have a meeting and share with your team or share with the stakeholders that are related to this problem. Hey, this is what we found. And that's valuable for them to understand the problem, because especially because they were often thinking, oh, gosh, this is a customer service issue where so many people are saying they aren't getting their products and we're doing something wrong or our carriers are doing something wrong. Now they're learning that, but it's also showing them, hey, I've got this. I'm I'm identifying losses and then I'm finding solutions. Even if they look small, this is a gap that maybe it's not being exploited right now, but it will be. But it may grow, yes. Fraudology is now brought to you by Sardine. So what is Sardine? I mean... Other than a small oily fish in the herring family, Sardine is a fraud tech platform that was ultimately built by fraud fighters for fellow fraud fighters with the features that they wanted in a fraud provider when they worked for companies within financial services, e-commerce, digital banking, and consumer lending. They're a team who geeks out on the same minute data that indicate a fraud pattern or anomaly as we do, and they run investigations every day. Sardine's product is even measured with the same KPIs as you probably are. More specifically, Sardine has combined more than 30 data providers into one tool for you. Benchmarked for performance into a single dashboard and API that can be used for KYC, AML, and payment fraud detection. But crucially, they also allow Sardine customers to use their own data, to access their own data, as well as the results from all data providers they work with and the features Sardine has created as they, their customers, need to use them. There's no more mysterious black box that calculates the risk of new accounts, logins, or transactions and magically turns them into a score that was most likely based on attributes that look risky to other business models. For some clients, they use Sardines as their full stack for all account onboarding, transaction monitoring, case management, etc. Others use them as a sophisticated data provider. Basically, Sardine fits to you rather than vice versa. So if you want to see for yourself that the product you've always wanted finally exists, you can book a demo at www.sardine.ai or by clicking the link in the show notes for today's episode. And hey, I'm finding all these gaps and fixing them. And then that feedback of Correct. when you find collaboration put in. Right. And knowing that it's going to, yes, collaboration internally as well externally, we always talk about, but internally so important. And you can't just expect it to be an on off switch. And I think I've had conversations with a few merchants that just want the easy answers. They want, they just want the answers to the test. And it's like, it doesn't. We charge for those. <laughs> 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 even yeah i'm pretty good well, that's uh, you your and business. I both, yeah but you and i both are very good at that in different ways and we really enjoy teaching people about this in a different way and things like that but 
at the end of the day, there's going to be work to be done. This is a whole new type of loss for your company that wasn't prepared for before. And you've got to roll up your sleeves. And if you're not prepared to do that, then you're going to have to answer to your company why you're losing so much more than everyone else. Because what also happens is as your competitors are shoring up their processes and they're losing less, if you haven't done it yourself, yours is just going to keep tripling and quadrupling. And we see that quite often in the criminal forums as well. And joke aside, there is no easy answer. I agree with you 100%. <laughs> we can provide I mean, direction and, is, yes. and some solutions to find the answer faster. But mm-hmm. collaboration is a key because I spend so much time training my internal team on how this fraud looks like. Because it's about bringing that awareness and not everybody, I think we start with, oh, everybody understands this. No, they do not understand it. It's not their job to understand. It's our job to understand. So for us is, it is up to us to train them, to show them how this looks like, how they will recognize from their point of view, how this request will look like, how the resolution should look like, and what can they do to prevent this from happening? Mm. I provided training internally to our customer service team twice and we have the we have the community direct communication so i see a lot email sent telling me hey we found this hey we found this do you want to look at that which Mm -hmm. tells me my training was definitely valuable because now they're able to identify it on their own and now they exactly know what they look what they have to look for and last time we mentioned risk-based approach it is this is risk this is no longer service to the customer this is now risk Mm -hmm. and you have to take risk-based approach in order to handle it but on the other hand i have I provided multiple different trainings to different individuals, other retailers, on how to look for this free of charge. It was just, I felt so bad that mm-hmm. they're dealing with these things that they don't understand, that they don't even know where to start. So I'm like, okay, here it is. Here's how it looks right. like. Here's what you can do. Here's where you need to go. But that to bring awareness of how this problem truly looks like, why is it a problem and why is it important for us to Mm -hmm. focus on this is actually imperative in this case. Yeah. And I would argue that there are definitely ways and we're aware of several that where you can detect and prevent the malicious ones without, with actually increasing the customer experience for the people who legitimately do have a package lost or correct the shipping carrier's truck caught on fire, or there's so many crazy stories about, especially during COVID, there really are legitimate issues. And actually, we know of a merchant who, when they were doing this, they actually identified, wait, we're having a lot of empty box or missing item claims. And all of them are from a similar region. And they're all coming from a similar distribution warehouse for the shipping carrier. And they help the shipping carrier identify internal theft to that whenever, process, yeah. yeah, to help them to uh, tighten their process. But at the end of the day, that's still the merchant losing money. They were able to find, okay, these customers weren't bad. They weren't fraudulent. They were legitimately receiving empty boxes. There was someone at the warehouse that anytime they would see a box from this particular retailer and they were things that were high value. They would just take them out of the box and then ship the box back. Or sometimes they, I think they'd put a few things in there, like junk in there just to make it weigh something. Yeah. So just again, saying that it's not always, it's not black and white. And that can be very frustrating to a lot of people who just want to, what's the answer? And I do think that that's a lot of other people in your company. You know, we love this. We love uncovering, you know, you and I are a special breed of crazy. Let's be clear. Like not everybody in fraud should do this. Thank you very much. 
a compliment. I'll take it me. as a compliment. Yes. As you should. Yes. But, you know, we love the problem solving. We get excited about that. We love getting to learn about, wow, this can happen or that can happen. And we love the nuance. We like the fact that it's different and, you know, that it's not, it's not easy to detect. And we have definitely found some shortcuts and we are, we have created some training together that we're going to be providing soon. I'll announce more details at the end of the episode, but at the same time, that as well as we've been working on a couple other things too, to help solve this problem too, that I'm really excited about that are so close to ready. But I think it is the fact that it's not going to be black and white. It's not going to be easy. We love that. Not everyone does. And so to your point, and I actually did a whole episode on this just last Thursday, kind of inspired by a conversation with Alan on last Tuesday, was a lot of the things that make us really good at fraud fighting make us really shitty communicators within our company <laughs> or make us like the people that everyone else in the company are like, oh, man, they care about this way too much. I mean, oh, there she is again. What does she <laughs> want now? <laughs> yeah, there's a buddy of ours that says anytime he sends a Slack message like, hey, to like a couple people in the company, they're just like, shit, what's wrong? <laughs> it's no, just so you know, we're person. not ignoring you. I'm like, yeah, you are for uh, the most part. Yep. I did want to um, mention something about your legitimate customers. And there yeah. is a way to monitor your insult rate. Mm. I can't tell you what that is. I know what that <laughs> insult rate is for me, but not because I don't want to or anything. It's just right. you, you need to understand what would be insult to you. Is mm. it a customer who's going to call back and file another claim? Is it a customer who's going to escalate it? Is it a customer who's going to file the complaint or whatever? You need mm. to understand and define what the insult is for you in this type of process and right. then measure that. Right. Um, if you need a process to decline issuing a refund because it the request looks like it's very like a fraudulent, like they're not telling the truth because short of putting yeah. a lie detector up, cooking up to the phone, we can't always know. But there's definitely identifiers. And so if what you're saying is because I, I think there are different processes to this, right? At the first stage, companies are just measuring problem and trying to understand it. And then the second stage, they are often there will need to be an escalation process where, you know, these, if, you know, all these factors happen, give a refund. If all these factors happen, send it to us. And then for review for fraud, and that is extra bandwidth on your fraud team, but hopefully you've been optimizing your payment fraud and you're good there. Or you train a couple customer service agents, things like that. And then the third stage is you can move to what a lot of companies have set up for fraud now, where, you know, it's, all the way in automatic no, automatic yes, or a manual review. And we've seen that be possible and we know that is, but it can take 18, 24 months. But it can, yes. Yeah. But as anything else in fraud, you need to monitor your performance. You need to know what your baselines are and then you need to dial it up and down. Do you want to decline more? Here is what you can put in place to decline more. But then your insult rate is spiking up. Okay, then now I need to change this to lower my insult rate. You need to use the data. Mm -hmm. and the performance of whatever you're trying to put in place to understand where is the normal behavior and then understand what are your levels where you which you don't want to cross. Yeah. This is my insult rate I don't want to cross. This is my decline rate that I would want to cross and so on. But that's probably the final stage once you have all of this identified right. and tracked and processed. And once you explain to the company too, because you have to get other, this is the other piece that I think a lot of people in fraud find the hardest, is this isn't out of your control. I mean, you're still like, I mean, it is in your control to a certain extent, but you have to rely on customer service. You have to work with the warehouse. You have to work with operations Collaboration, and finance. because you can't do everything yourself. So you have to collaborate with mm -hmm. other teams. 
I know. And I think that some broad teams have gotten comfortable in, hey, this is my domain. Get out of it. I get to decide what orders get or what orders or accounts get canceled or which don't and stay out and whatever. You don't have that same, you know, you might if you build But then you the cannot right complain you're in silo process. because you are building those walls yourself. <laughs> How many times, I probably shouldn't spring this on you, but there have been a few times where we have heard merchants complain about the silos within their companies. And sometimes I'll get a text message from Diana saying, but that's their fault. I'm like, you want to say that to them? I can but, always trust Diana to say what she thinks. <laughs> sometimes you do. Yeah, you'll edit yourself, but you'll still say it to me and I appreciate I'm it. Trying and I'm trying to be nice. Going, yeah, I'm thinking the same thing, but we only have 10 minutes left and I don't think that's this is the appropriate format to tell them that. When we do hear people just being very negative and that's not possible or, oh, it must be nice that you guys can do this and that. It's like, it's not easy, but it's worth it. And if you listen to Alan last Tuesday, he sounded like he had just climbed a freaking mountain because he was so like proud as he should be with how much he you know has accomplished at Bed Bath and Beyond and you as well you've accomplished so much at JD and helped so many merchants understand it and now now we're in addition to that we're building out this training as well as some other stuff where we just want to help people more at a higher scale because you can't you really can't do that anymore. You just don't have a bandwidth to provide that. Do you that remember when I used to say in past that I explain what charge because at least once a week? Yes. So that's just a small glance of what you, as a fraud, professionally mm -hmm. have to go through. Within my company, I explain what the charge because not to my fraud team, but for other teams that do not have access or contact with chargebacks, I try to explain how chargebacks can impact us in a very negative way. So same with the refund fraud. You cannot expect from them to know because I always go back to this is not their job. This is our job. Our job is not to tell them what to do and how to do their job, but our job is to make it safer for them. And that's, I think that's the part of the process. That's a challenge that everybody has is we go and tell them, you need to do this, you need to do this, you need to do that. No, I always ask our teams, how do you do these things? Let me see what I can do to make it safer. So I'm trying to plug myself into their processes instead of them creating process around my rules. And that's never going to work. Because the the well, often they have different metrics and different goals than, than we do, right? So we're going to focus on, hey, here's how you mitigate your risk. And they're like, yeah, but I have these quotas over here or we can't do that because of this. And you're right. If you learn and ask questions and try to adapt to them, knowing that this is their job. But it's your job to be the person in the company to say, hey, have you thought about this being exploited in this way? Or how does it work here? Or what does this do? It really, you know, you can uncover a lot of things just by asking people questions. I certainly have in my consulting. I There's a, yeah, I, there was a time when I went through like a chargeback training for four hours and there was a guy that was quiet in the corner. And I just said, hey, you haven't talked lately. There's a couple of issues that we've identified that nobody really seen. There was a few issues that we'd identified that were causing chargebacks. Nobody really understood why because they didn't know the process end to end. And this quiet guy said, well, do you think that the reason why we're getting more chargebacks for refunds not received is because our customer service changed their policy last month to only give in-store credit that only lasts for 30 days? You think? But nobody asked him that. You know, so you never know. I think it's such a good opportunity, but you also, you have to be the one who's the bigger person who breaks down those walls first and shows them why it's important and all that, as well as 
the one thing that Alan said that I'm laughing because one thing that Alan said that I know you'll relate to, but it's, you know, these are hard truths. We don't like them. He said, as many times as you want to say, I told you so, don't, because that erodes walls. And I was like, oh, but it's so painful. Correct. Correct. But then there, there are ways to learn from those incidents. I'm not trying to be a told you so person or malicious person, but I do track incidents and I do track how much potential loss incidents cause and how much work it cost for me, my team to stop whatever mm. was happening during that. So then I use that as an example to say, hey, this is what happened. This is why it happened. This is what we need to do to make sure that it doesn't happen anymore. But that's yeah, a really good framework kind of, of how to, of how to, yeah. How to communicate that, right? This is, hey, I went and did this research and whether it's due to malicious refund fraud and claims fraud, or this is a gap in our process because nobody's really audited it before and they never really haven't, they haven't had a need to. And instead of acting, yeah, I'll take care of it. Oh, I guess I just have to add it or whatever. It's an opportunity to show your value to your company. It's another opportunity to put on your resume that you saved eight figures a year by optimizing processes, because ultimately our goal as fraud professionals is no longer just to stop chargebacks, especially in the e-commerce side. It's to decrease all losses or be profit protection, and it's to increase the customer experience. And we know that increasing customer experience often leads to increasing sales. And it gives you another opportunity to do it. Maybe you've shored everything up on the payment side. Here you go. Here's a new challenge for you. (laughs) Oh, absolutely. There isn't one. I'll make up one. But I think in this collaborating process, especially when it comes to refund fraud, you may yeah. learn that there are some things that already exist that you can tap into and you can leverage some existing reports. You can leverage some existing processes to your advantage or to the company's advantage. So instead of reinventing wheel and trying to understand everything, trying to understand things that you think is new, maybe that already exists somewhere. And mm. one of the very examples I'm going to use is when I first started working on refund fraud or on policy abuse overall. I was trying to understand what are the reasons for issuing this refund. And, and I, I, tr- I was digging everywhere, trying to find where can I pull up this report from? Where does it sit? How can I understand this, these breakdowns in these categories? Just to learn that our uh, order management team already sends a report like that to the customer service team to huh. the quality issues. I'm like, uh, okay. So instead of me doing everything <laughs> over again, hey, this existed. It's actually already broken down mm-hmm. into these categories. It gives you dollar oh, wow. amount. It gives you a date between the time the order was completed to the time that the request is put in so I can set up the average time frame in which these requests come in. There was so much data in there and I spent quite some time trying to find that information just to learn, hey, it exists. And it was so for a I, different purpose, but you could repurpose correct. it for this. Correct. That's so just point. building these relationships mm-hmm. and next time when they change policy, they're going to call you and ask you, hey, just to let you know we're changing this, do you have any opinions that you have to make sure you put your name out there, that you are known, that they know what you do and how you do this. So they will be making this type of these conversations in the future. I had a lot of those things happen to me when I was on the ground as a fraud leader, as I would socialize more within my company of what I was looking for or to your point of like you're talking about the customer service hey this is what it will look like to you all of a sudden I had all these frontline people being like hey doesn't this look risky why would we have somebody chatting from Zimbabwe when they their orders in Ohio that's a good question things Diana like that stole their order <laughs> <laughs> gotta be it I know I said Ohio because I'm looking at you and that's where you live I over promised on this episode because 
we, as always, we're such high achievers. We lose track. We're horrible. We do. But actually, I think you brought up so many important points that so many people that are dealing with this will appreciate that I think they'll forgive us. But we're running out of time and we're not going to have the opportunity to run through the five different methods of refund abuse or claims fraud, not abuse, but claims fraud that the frauds or the refunders are doing. They call themselves refunders together. But I think this is something that I I present quite a bit in trainings and, and presentations. So I'll run through it on the solo episode probably next Thursday. I don't know 100%, but on the next solo episode I do, I'll provide the five different types of refund methods. and. Like I said, I will also be providing a little more information about how to learn from from Diana and I more on the specifics and how we can provide some tips and, hey, have you thought about this? Or I often get messages from merchants saying, hey, we're seeing some weird stuff on the on our tracking data from our carrier. And it says it was delivered and it says something else. And I'm like, oh, I know exactly what that is. We can't talk yeah. about it here. But we can share about it. So we are joining forces to and we have created a training to be able to learn about the other side of fraud and what they're doing and how they're attacking you and what they're taking advantage of. And then learning, you know, mostly from Diana, because she's done it already, how to build the process internally and how to socialize it and the different places to look. And it's a cheat sheet, but it's certainly not the answer key because we can't do that for you. Every company is different. <laughs> Correct. We'll give them kind of pointers of where to go, how what right. to look for. But sometimes you really have to be creative and come up with your own way. But as long as you understand what you're looking for, what you're mm -hmm. chasing, what is your risk and where that risk gap is, I'm sure all of the fraud managers will be able to come up with some good ways of stopping that fraud and closing those gaps. Yeah. And I'm very excited that I know of at least two newer solutions that are just coming out in the market that they approach the problem in different ways. But I'm excited about them because they're two of the ways that we thought of and full disclosure, we're involved in one of them. But the other one I got to see and think is great too. And that's exciting to me because that means that part of the success of us socializing this was to help solution providers better understand this problem so they can help us too. Because we can't, not many or not any retailers can create a full technology solution to stop a new problem on their own. Obviously, we could talk about this forever. But Diana, I wanted to just ask, if there's anything else you'd like to share just as we're closing out and anything else that you've learned during this or, you know. Just kind of highlights. Understand your problem. Understand your process and then understand your problem. Mm. Track, measure, categorize, and attack. Wow. You can tell that we've been working on training. So we've got our bullet points <laughs> and our takeaways. But that's perfect and a great place to lead. So thank you again, not just for taking the time out of your very busy week to have this conversation, but also for everything you do for the retailer community and um, it's been really fun to find these problems with you in the nerdiest way possible. We have four-hour conversations, but we really dive in and have found some really, I think, creative ways because we each have a different, each half of our brain gets together to a bigger brain. <laughs> and some great results come out of it. Thank you it's so true. much for having me again. Thank you so much.
Thank you again to Spec for sponsoring today's episode. I'm really excited for more online companies to see what's possible with their fraud infrastructure. Spec's Trust Cloud is way more than just another fraud product, and I hope you'll visit www.specprotected, that's S-P-E-C-P-R-O-T-E-C-T-E-D.com to learn why.